Um, a couple of uh, housekeeping things as we start this morning, just at this season of the year with Thanksgiving coming up this week. We're keen just to bless uh, anyone in our uh, body here who's struggling um, to put uh, resources together for that. We're going to be giving away Maya gift cards at the end. Um, if you are in any kind of need uh, just in this um, holiday season coming into this week, do come and uh, just uh, take benefit of those. That's uh, there for you. Um, and also um, something that we began last week, but you know it's a, a kind of a minor surgery we're trying to perform here on Crossroads Church Culture. Uh, the, at the end of our uh, services, we're trying to just introduce a bit of time of silent reflection um, just so that we're able to uh, take the, the seeds of uh, God's word that he's planting in us as we sing and as we uh, hear the Bible opened up and really just get them settled down in our souls so we can remember them when Monday morning comes around and we want to actually be living that stuff out. Uh, you'll see that's very relevant to our passage today. We have uh, the parable of the sower among other things. Um, but anyway, that will be coming up at the end, so uh, just watch out for that. So we are uh, back in Matthew's Gospel this morning. Uh, you're definitely going to need a Bible handy. I'm not going to read the whole text we're going to study. So um, put your hand up if you need a Bible. One of the gentlemen at the back will uh, bring one to you, um, but you'll definitely find that helpful. As I said, we're going to be reading parables today. We have eight of them in our text. As you know, we're blazing through Matthew at quite a pace here, so we have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, hearing me say that we have parables, I guess, um, uh, will be raising a number of expectations in our minds for this morning's message. Some of us, I expect, are looking forward to this because it's nice, familiar territory. Um, you know, we all know the parable of the sower and the parable of the mustard seed, don't we? So there shouldn't be too many surprises. Uh, some of us, I expect, are feeling a little bit relieved um, because the parables are nice and simple. It's not like you uh, need to have uh, kind of one thumb in um, uh, your Bible dictionary and one thumb in multiple places of the Old Testament, various prosthetic thumbs in other reference books. Um, some of us maybe are um, just looking forward to a few good stories, you know, a kind of fireside moment with Jesus. That's how the parables come off to us sometimes, isn't it? But if those kind of expectations are forming in your mind, I hate to jam on the brakes, but um, uh, we're going to be disappointed uh, this whole series has been pretty edgy and intense. It's been that for all of us who've been teaching, and it's just going to keep going that way today. Um, the parables are not what we think they are. Uh, they're provocative, they're unsettling, they're not easy to understand, uh, and they're still uh, less easy to actually put into practice. And that's the call on our lives with this stuff, not just to hear it, but to actually do it. Um, so buckle your seatbelts um, for this ride here with Jesus. Let's see whether we can grasp what he has in mind. Uh, as I said, the text we're going to deal with is the whole of Matthew chapter 13 today, but I'm just going to read uh, a central section of it, starting at Matthew 13 verse 10 now. So let's stand together um, to hear God's word. Um, Matthew chapter 13, uh, starting at verse 10, I'm going to read it through to the end of verse 17. The disciples came to Jesus and they asked, why do you speak to people in parables? And he replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. 
Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their uh, eyes and hear with their ears. Understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but didn't see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Um, take a seat. Let's pray. And then we'll um, begin. Jesus, we're conscious that um, this is pretty much your signature um, teaching style we're going to have in front of us today. This is almost as close as we can get to what it would be like to actually be there on the shores of the lake, hearing you do your thing back in the first century. And it's a privilege. God, we are so grateful to you just for preserving these words for us. Um, but we know that they're not just a historical curiosity. Uh, it's not just here that we might know about this great man who said these great things. But these things were written that our lives might be radically changed. And we pray, God, boldly, because we know that you are alive and powerful, that you would radically change us, that you would work in our hearts, that you would lay us bare, that you would uh, interrupt us, uh, on the journeys that we're on, if that's what we need this morning. God, would you be at work in our body, in our hearts, um, to help us uh, love you and serve you, to be yielded to you, uh, to drink in the grace that's available in you, and to be available to our neighbors, uh, that they might also be blessed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. This chapter has got quite a complicated underlying structure, so let's just kind of cover that off here as we begin. Verses 1 to 3, if you look at them in your Bibles, give us the context. Uh, down by the lake, uh, Lake Galilee one day, Jesus finds himself surrounded by a large crowd. Not an unfamiliar situation. He gets into a boat, and he begins to teach them in parables, um, starting with the parable of the sower. Later on, when his teaching is finished, if you just glance on to verse 36... You'll see that he leaves the lakeshore and he goes to a house uh, with his disciples, probably up somewhere in Capernaum. Uh, and there he opens up the meaning of the parables at a greater length. So you can kind of picture that day in your mind, a day spent teaching, an evening spent explaining, something like that. The chapter, however, doesn't quite follow that series of events linearly. After the parable of the sower down on the lake, Matthew does a kind of flash forward to the house uh, so that we can hear Jesus explain what the parable of the sower means. Later on, after Jesus has entered the house, we get three more parables. Now, those are probably flashbacks uh, to the material that he covered down on the lake. And we don't just have Jesus teaching in parables here. We also have Jesus teaching about teaching. That's what he was doing in the passage we just read. Three times, it's as if Jesus kind of steps away from the mic and uh, addresses the audience pretty candidly about why he's doing the things he does the way he's doing them. 
Um, twice he goes back into the Old Testament uh, to explain his enigmatic style. So there's a lot going on here. How do we keep track of it all? Well, I think the main thing for us to remember when we're reading Matthew chapter 13 is that uh, there are two audiences in play in this section. We have the crowd and we have the disciples. Uh, there's an extent to which the, the question Jesus wants to, us to ask ourselves is just which one are we? As we saw in the part of the text that we read, Jesus te- uh, treats those two audiences quite differently. Uh, Jesus teaches the crowd in parables, but he explains everything line by line to his disciples. So it's, um, it's as if the crowd get the standard release DVD of Jesus in Galilee, and um, his <laughs> disciples get the director's cut with all of the bonus features. That's the, uh, the way this thing is set up. And that um, brings us to our first unexpected observation about these parables. Jesus' parables were designed to divide. Just listen to it in the first two verses of our section. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. That's intense, isn't it? And it just gets worse. Whoever has will be given more, says Jesus, and they will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. That sounds almost anti-Jesus, doesn't it? We see Jesus as being for the least and the lost. We see Jesus as the guy who raises up the downtrodden, not the guy who takes away the little that they have. And that's right. Jesus isn't telling us here that he wants to make life easier for the the physically healthy and the materially wealthy or harder for those who lack physical or material blessings. But he is saying that when it comes to matters of the heart, when it comes to understanding why we're here and what we're for, there's a sense in which having little is the fast route to having even less rich or poor, if we've given Jesus the, uh, the place that he deserves and that he demands in our lives, that's true, isn't it? The more we hear, the more riches we receive. If we get it, our Bibles become a kind of tear through the surface of normal reality, like the TARDIS in Doctor Who, if you're, if you're into that. Bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. You know, the deeper in you wade, the deeper you find you still have to wade. But the person who hasn't given Jesus the place that he deserves and that he demands in their life doesn't see that. In fact, they hear the more that they hear, the more they're hardened by what they hear. That's very apparent to me coming from a non-Christian background. I can't help thinking about many of the the non-Christians that I know in my family and uh, in my network of friends. Saying no to the gospel makes us steadily more impregnable to it. When the gospel cuts us just a little bit, and we uh, just say no to it for the first time, what we're doing is just putting a kind of thin layer of protection around our hearts. It's uh, so thin that it's barely noticeable. Uh, We tilt ourselves ever so slightly in the direction of self-sufficiency. We distance ourselves just ever so slightly from the biblical diagnosis of our need. That's what happens when we just make that first refusal. But that first refusal makes each successive refusal easier. And year after year, those little thin layers build up and up and up 
until our hearts are encased in carbon fiber body armor. And that's the reality that Jesus is going after here. Some of us are doing it right now. When we listen to the Bible, one of these two things is always happening. We're either receiving more or what we have already is being taken from us. We can't just be neutral. If we sit hearing convicting messages and singing convicting songs week after week, but do nothing about it, we become steadily less and less likely to ever do anything about it. That really cuts, doesn't it? Jesus explains that frightening principle by quoting words from the commissioning of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. This people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah, uh, you might know, was sent to the, the kingdom of Judah as a prophet at a time when confidence in God was right out of fashion. Uh, Judah's kings put their confidence in economic prosperity and making political alliances with the great nations around them, unaware actually that the whole thing was literally just about to come crashing down when the Assyrians came riding through. But Jesus applies that spirit of self-sufficiency from 700 years before uh, his time to his own generation. And I think he would do the same with us. If we allow the tender little seedlings of conviction that God pushes up above the surface of our souls in church and when we're reading the Bible on our own, uh, to just get mown down in industrial-grade busyness, problem-solving, solution-making, and worry, uh, then we're just like Isaiah's audience. And bit by bit, uh, the reality, uh, their reality, the, the, uh, the reality of the people Isaiah spoke to will become our reality uh, to the point where Rod and I can stand up here, Isaiah style, week by week, reminding us that when the second coming happens uh, and the indiscriminate outpouring of God's kingdom comes, um, bursting the wineskin of any life that's not surrendered to him, we will just nod and say, wow, yeah, that's powerful imagery and not do anything about it. We won't be driven to prayer or repentance or evangelism at all. And that's not good. That's how we end up outside the kingdom. So do you see how hard these parables punch? We haven't even read one yet. <laughs> this section alone just leaves me calling out to God for his help to get my face up out of my plate and breathe in the oxygen of actually hearing and obeying and depending on him. That's what Jesus is really summoning us to here. And the good news is, if that's where our hearts are going, that's exactly the point that God wants to start with us. Because what is the life pattern that Jesus is calling us to here in this text? What does it look like to be on the right side of the division that these parables create, on the side that really hears and really sees? Verse 16 tells us, if you look down at that, this is going to be a kind of theme verse for us as we go through. It's marked by recognition of our inability to help ourselves and dependence on God to bless us. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear, says Jesus. The difference between those who see and those who don't, between those who see steadily more and more and those who see steadily less and less, is a God's blessing. And all we contribute to that is desperation, really. 
if we come to the point of realizing that we need God's blessing in life, there are no bargaining chips that we can play. All we can do is call out. All that we bring to the table is need. So let's take that perspective now at that kind of striking, shocking, divisive agenda that Jesus has and take that for a ride through the parables themselves and see what it is that we learn. We'll go to the the first and the longest one uh, first, the parable of the sower. I'm just going to assume that you know roughly the way that this parable is set up. Uh, Jesus' imagery comes from uh, the normal work life of his hearers. Uh, Perhaps if Jesus were telling it today, it would have been the parable of the startup business Uh, with an idea being pitched to four different kinds of investor. That maybe would make more sense to us now, but I still think Jesus' agricultural analogy communicates pretty well, so we'll stay with that just to hear it how Jesus originally said it. A farmer goes out to uh, sow his seed, and it falls on four different kinds of soil. And as Jesus explains to his disciples uh, what this means later on in the house in Capernaum in the evening, Um, he tells them what the seed in each one of these different types of soil represent. The seed, says Jesus, is the message about the kingdom of God. Uh, This is what Jesus has been preaching, isn't it? The truth that God made men and women originally to be his people, his children, living in his place, enjoying the blessing of his presence and his rule. But it's also the truth that humanity, us, uh, we stuck two fingers up at God and we... uh, Uh, tried to be God ourselves, plunging ourselves into thousands of years of self-inflicted pain. And it's the truth that miraculously, after all of that, God himself is now intervening to bring lost humanity back to himself, bearing the consequences of our wrongs in the, uh, the shape of his own son. That's the seed. That's the message of the kingdom. And the four types of soil are the life stories of four different people who received this seed. The first one, the seed that fell on the path, actually uh, comes pretty close to what we started with, uh, doesn't it? Uh, When the Word of God falls on all of us, we need to take care how we respond to it. Are we willing to make the effort to understand and retain what it is that God is teaching us, or are we going to let Satan snatch it away? That's the, uh, the question that the parable puts to us. One of the reasons that we feel moved as a church at the moment to introduce this reflection time at the end of our services is that we just realize we need to do what we can to create the conditions that help us retain and nurture what it is that God's doing in us here on a Sunday. And we need each of us to take responsibility for that during the week. Satan doesn't have to actually have to do anything particularly satanic, does he, to uh, uh, snatch away the little seeds of conviction and encouragement that God sows in this body uh, if they're all mown down in a hail of changing, of uh, moving chairs around and just jumping up and grabbing coffee at the end of our services. So we can do something there to actually look after ourselves uh, and look after each other by creating space for this stuff just to get the chance to go a bit deeper in us. But what I want us to see as we press on through the parable is that what we heard Jesus say at the start is relevant to all of it. The parable of the sower is a living embodiment of the fact that the parables divide. The parable of the sower exists to tell us that there are three ways to kill the seed and only one way to make it grow. There are three ways to be out of the kingdom and only one way to be in. And the one way to be in is marked by radical fruitfulness. 
There's no way for the seed to survive in the long run that doesn't involve bearing tons of fruit, 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. There is no make it to the end in safety and leave the holiness and the prayerness and the outreach to others option. It's just not here, is it? I hate to be so blunt about it, but Jesus makes no space for that. To be in the kingdom is to be radically fruitful. If we're not radically fruitful, we're not in the kingdom. And that changes the way that we read this, I think. I think a lot of us come to the parable of the sower asking the question, is this telling me I can lose my faith? Because two of the four life stories that Jesus tells here have that dynamic to them, don't they? Uh, The rocky soil produces this promising little stalk before it's uh, withered by the sun. The thorny soil produces a fully-fledged plant before it gets choked out by other plants competing for the same resources. But if we read this noticing the hard division that Jesus makes between the first three stories and the last story, I think we can see that actually neither the rocky soil life nor the thorny soil life actually has a faith to lose in the end. Real faith is marked by fruitfulness. The two things are inextricably bound together And there's no fruit in the first three stories. No fruit, no faith. See, if we're we're looking at our walk then and placing our hope in the fact that we got off to a great start, if we tell our testimony, maybe that's the main thing that we've got to say. If we're hopeful that we've got something going on with God because we responded rapidly and with joy, we need to know that Jesus is profoundly uninterested in that. That isn't necessarily faith. Actually, if you look at it, the way that Jesus phrases it in verse 5, he seems to think that a rapid and joyful initial response may actually be a bad sign. Responding slowly and sorrowfully might actually be a more hopeful indicator of where the plant's going to end up in the end. And even if we're looking at strong growth in the stem and the leaves of our walk with God, I still think Jesus would caution us against over-optimism. That isn't necessarily faith either. We can believe the right things, go to the right school, show up at the right events, go to the right church, but none of that necessarily adds up to the fruit of a changed life, does it? All of that stuff can live alongside the thorns that Jesus describes in the parable, but a changed life cuts them down. And what Jesus wants us to see here is that if we don't cut them down, they will cut down the thing that we thought was our faith. In verse 22, Jesus identifies the thorns in the parable as the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth. And these two things are in the business of cutting down faith, either by persuading us that faith isn't necessary because we've got wealth to look after us, or by persuading us that faith is ineffective, which leaves us worrying about all the things in life that faith can't affect. Wealth makes us believe, doesn't it, that good things come to us on a kind of conveyor belt. You know, we just see it continually pouring towards us. But what does that do to you inside? It gets you so fixated on the conveyor belt, doesn't it, uh, that you forget that it's God's goodness and mercy that's putting things on at the other end. Wealth blinds us to the truth that however strong our job security and our insurance policies may look, when it gets right down to it, we are all living just as dependently as each other. 
Just ask the people who got knocked out by Hurricane Sandy the other week. Our lives are fragile, and fragility feeds faith. But wealth blinds us to our fragility, and so it kills faith. Think about worry. Worry is a manifestation of doubt about whether God can really be trusted, isn't it? However much God tells us he's got things covered, worry responds with the question, uh, but what if it all goes wrong? What if God gets distracted by other things? What if God means well, but he doesn't actually have the power to uh, deal with the circumstances that I'm facing right now? What if this turns out to be the point where I discover I'm not really a Christian and none of these great promises are actually for me? What if God isn't really there? Trusting that God has it all covered feeds faith, doesn't it? But worry cuts the legs out from under that trust, and so it kills faith. So do you see then that the only place in the parable where we really see faith at all is in the last story, the story where the seed bears fruit in a changed life? It's not that these good soil people never struggled um, to retain or nurture the message of God when it came to them. Uh, It's not that they never had wealth or never experienced worry, but that they chose not to be consumed by it. They recognized the thorns in their lives and they cut them down ruthlessly. And that's the point of division between the members of the kingdom and the people who are outside it. Now, strange as it might seem, I hope that that will actually be a real encouragement to some of us. Because perhaps some of us are the kind of people who didn't actually experience great joy or rapid growth at the beginning of our walk with God. Perhaps that's always seemed like a bad sign to us, a kind of question mark hanging over the reality of our faith that we don't have that kind of testimony. Definitely put myself in that camp. But what if we do see the fruit of a changed life right now? What if we can see God creating a spirit of generosity or hospitality in us that's fighting against that whole deceitfulness of wealth? What if we're experiencing God's strength in our lives to enable us to work harder, a difficult job or a different difficult marriage? Well, we may not be what we will be, but we're not what we were. Bless God, that's fruit and we're his children. Perhaps some of us are the kind of people who don't feel all that strong in the stem or the leaves of their uh, walk. Perhaps we doubt. Perhaps we're discouraged by ingratitude and inconsistency in our own hearts. But what if even with all that, we do still see the fruit of a changed life? What if we see God moving in our hearts to help us uh, just uh, gravitate towards the needs of those who are less fortunate than us? What if we see God growing in us a love for his word and sharing it with our neighbors? We may not be what we will be, but we're not what we were. Bless God, that's fruit. We're his children. Do you fear that those signs of fruit in your life might be self-deception? I hope so. I know I do. But that's part of the purpose of the parable, isn't it? Part of the reason why Jesus tells it. God gives us warnings like this because he knows the effect that they have on his children is to make us even more determined to be fruitful. If we know him, our hearts are soft to his voice. And the fear of losing him just makes us want to draw even tighter. It's a state of heart that can hear these warnings and say, oh, that will never happen to me. Now, that's far more concerning, isn't it? 
And this parable is here so that if we can see that happening ourselves, we can do something about it. We can choose to resist it. If God's word is bouncing off the surface of our lives, this parable is here to help us choose to grasp hold of it. If we realize we've been satisfied with a superficial response so far, this parable is here to help us choose to go deeper. If we can see wealth and worry getting their claws into what we always hoped and believed was our faith, this parable is here to help us reach out for the real thing. Jesus wants us to choose fruitfulness. This parable is not here to encourage a kind of passivity that says, oh, I'm rocky soil. God made me this way. There's nothing I can do about it. Or I'm thorny soil. My faith is just destined to wither as I get older. No, it's here to help us call out to God for the good stuff. That's how the good soil became good soil in the first place and how it stays that way. It becomes good soil by seeing the risk of becoming the path or the rocky soil or the thorny soil and saying, I just don't want that, God. And that's what it looks like to call out for the blessing that marks all the members of God's kingdom. It's kind of complicated and upside down, isn't it? But do you see it? The next parable in our chapter is the parable of the weeds. Now, this one we might not know so well, so I'm going to read it to you, starting at verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did all these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Once again, just like the parable of the sower, this parable then gets picked up later when Jesus is discussing these things with his disciples in the house. Uh, In verse 37, Jesus says that the one who sows the good seed is the son of man himself. The field is the word. The good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are the angels. So that gives us all the interpretive tools we need to get to grips with this text now. If we follow the narrative along, we're reading this through in Matthew, I think we can see why this parable flows on naturally from the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower, I think, should leave us asking some challenging questions. We don't just come away from it feeling convicted about the need to be fruitful, do we? We come away asking, Why did God even make the world like this? Why are there some people who respond to the the gospel and then their convictions uh, wither later? That's just so sad. Why would he allow that to be? Why did God even make a world where there are thorns that can choke our love for him before it produces any fruit? I wonder whether you ask questions like that from time to time. Something unusual happens in this text, though. Uh, This is one of the few places in the Bible where those kind of hypothetical questions actually get addressed Jesus gives us a rare glimpse behind the curtain here into what it actually looks like to be the God of everything, uh, organizing uh, the whole show. The first thing he wants to communicate to us in answer to these questions is that Satan is real. He doesn't tell us that Satan is out of control, but he does attribute the thorns that grow up and threaten our faith 
to Satan's malevolence towards him and towards us. You can't help being reminded, I think, of the curse that God pronounces on Adam in Genesis 3 here. Do you remember that? Where we learned that the ground, which used to be such a pleasure for Adam to work with, uh, is now going to produce thorns and thistles from now on. Having chosen to listen to Satan's advice, Adam is thrown out of the garden into a world that's marked by Satan's fingerprints. And in just the same way, the thorns and the thistles that choke our faith are a just consequence of our own sinful choices. But there's more to it here, isn't there? Jesus also tells us why the great king of heaven doesn't rip these thorns out of the ground straight away. The reason is mercy. And this has been a theme for us, actually, as we've been working our way through Matthew. I don't know whether you've spotted this. This is new to me, but quite striking as you go through it in order. Why didn't um, uh, Jesus come to pour out the new wine of the kingdom indiscriminately uh, as soon as he arrived? Do you remember that in Matthew 9? Because he knew that every man and woman alive would be burst and ruined by it if he did. And he wanted to come and make a way for us to be included. Why didn't Jesus live up to John the Baptist's expectations for a warrior Messiah that we heard about in Matthew chapter 11? Because he came to bring the year of the Lord's favor before bringing the day of God's vengeance. And I think the same thing is going on here, that emphasis on mercy first. Jesus leaves his people in a world surrounded by thorns and uh, thistles that threaten our faith because he knows that tearing the thorns out of his creation while the good seeds are still growing would destroy the good seed too. His motive is compassion. Now, it may not feel like that, but that's the reality The good shepherd who sees the whole landscape with all of its dangers, uh, he knows that the route on which he's leading us is the route which is uh, the one on which we're most likely to stay safe. And we need to trust him for that, even when it's hard. When we're wrestling with the temptation, sorry, with temptation, asking God why there are so many things in our path that make the Christian life so hard to live, we need to remember that he's allowing these things for our good. And that the kind of power that would destroy them uh, is uh, the kind of power that would destroy us too, if it were unleashed in our world right now. Jesus has the whole thing calculated uh, in the interest of keeping his people trusting. But he doesn't hide the fact, does he, that the journey is not going to end in safety for all. This is very uncomfortable stuff. But the kingdom of God still divides Picking up the language of John the Baptist from earlier in the book, Jesus tells us that the people of the kingdom are going to be gathered into his barn. But in the end, the people of the evil one are going to be tied together and burned. We don't want to hear that, do we? I know I don't. It just sounds so brutal. It sounds out of proportion. Uh, Certainly when I think about the the many kind and thoughtful non-Christians that I know. It doesn't fit with the whole gentle Jesus, meek and mild thing that I guess many of us have ingested along the way. It doesn't fit with the idea uh, that the God of the Bible who had this kind of unfortunate judgmental streak in the Old Testament has turned over a new leaf in the new. But the problem with all of those ideas is that they don't come from the Bible. And we're not at liberty to set man's ideas about God over God's ideas about God, however much we might prefer them. 
Jesus couldn't be more clear about his intentions here. If you read Jesus' explanation of the parable in verse 41, his message is stark. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And they will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. He repeats exactly that same description when he comes to explain the parable of the nets later on in verses 49 and 50. So we just have to get to grips with this. It's not a slip of the, uh, the pen from Matthew. The kingdom of God does not just entail a division between those who are fruitful in this life and those who aren't. It entails a division in eternity as well where people who receive the gift of a life made in God's image and yet who decided to use that gift to try to become God themselves, even if that manifested, in its, in it manifested itself in a way that their fellow human beings found completely acceptable, those people will be punished because setting ourselves up against God, the God of perfect goodness and love, and using the gifts that he created in us to do it, That's treason and scandalous ingratitude, and God will not let it pass. That's the message of the Bible. From this point, Jesus moves into two pairs of parables, which we'll deal with fairly rapidly, starting with the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast. The focal point of these parables is all about scale, Uh, But the divisive agenda that we've seen marching through the whole thing is still very much front and center. Jesus wants us to see the strong contrast between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of man, big produces big. If I want to mastermind a giant product launch, I need a giant ad campaign, don't I? If I want to land a giant role, I need a giant resume. That's the, the logic of the world. But in the kingdom of God... The opposite is true. In the kingdom of God, big starts small. The mustard seed, says Jesus, is the smallest of all seeds. Yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds come and perch in its branches. And because that's Jesus' parallel for the kingdom of heaven, uh, it sends, or it should send, the kingdom of heaven in a radically different direction from the world. The world wants us to think really carefully about who we invest in, doesn't it? We should pour ourselves into people who have the most promising qualifications. We should let people who are broken or tarnished uh, just fend for themselves. And it leads to a pretty grim Darwinian vision of life, doesn't it? But the kingdom of heaven moves towards the least and the lost. Just look at Jesus and the people that he chose to pour himself into fishermen and tax collectors. These guys were not exactly forcing their way into the seminaries and the society parties of the day, were they? And yet Jesus had time for them because he knew that the kingdom of heaven can build big out of small. And when it does, there's a beautiful result. In God's hands, a person who knows that they were lost and that they were nothing before Jesus touched them can become very great very significant and useful in his kingdom. But they will always be a very different person uh, from the kind of person who grows to be great and believes that they deserve it. The person who knows that they were useless before God made them useful 
becomes a kind of perch for other useless people. They actively want to support others and give them a start on their journey uh, in following Jesus because they remember what it feels like to be a kind of unlikely prospect. The person who feels entitled to greatness shakes the birds out of their hair because they're stopping them look good. But the kind of person who's look, that Jesus is looking for knows what it is to be blessed. Uh, they've been blessed with eyes to see and ears to hear, and they want to pass that blessing along. Moving into the parable of the yeast, Jesus wants to concentrate on the way that the kingdom of heaven spreads. It doesn't just get big by standing all on one spot, does it? The kingdom of heaven gets big by affecting and influencing its surroundings. It's like yeast that works all the way through the dough. Jesus is strangely definite about the details of the parable here, isn't he? Uh, The kingdom of heaven is not just like yeast that spreads through the dough. It's like yeast that a woman took and uh, mixed into about three measures of flour. I wonder why he's so specific. Well, he's connecting us back here to the great flour mixing story of the Old Testament, uh, the story of Abraham and the three visitors in Genesis 18, where Abraham and his wife Sarah take three measures of the finest flour and they bake bread to go along with the meat from one of his best calves to entertain these guys. Abraham and Sarah set a feast before them. The three measures of flour is equivalent to about 50 pounds in modern units. But that's how the kingdom of heaven operates. If you're convinced that you're part of something that makes big out of small, you've got no uh, fear about giving big away, have you? You can almost hear Abraham's internal dialogue when you read this in Genesis. You know, when I set off for my homeland, I wasn't anything great. And yet God has done wonderful things for me. He gave us these three measures of flour, and I believe he could give us another three. So let's bake the lot. Amazing. And that's why the kingdom has this amazing propensity to spread. Why wouldn't it spread with that upside-down ethos of continually giving away the very best that it has? It requires faith to be part of it, doesn't it? No one's going to bear this kind of fruit without faith in a God who can replenish the unreplenishable. If we have our noses in the worries of the world and we're drinking in the deceitfulness of wealth, we won't be able to think this way. But if we really have faith, we're free from that whole paradigm because we're continually cutting ourselves free from it by acting on the assumption that God will provide. And if that's our reality, we're in the kingdom. The next two parables have uh, more encouragement for members of the kingdom in them. They tell us that the sacrifice involved in opting into it is worth it. I love the contrast that Jesus introduces in these two stories. Again, something I've not seen before. The first one invites us to picture a man whose life is interrupted one day by amazing good fortune. He's walking through a field, stubs his toe on something. He looks down and he sees the corner of a box poking up through the freshly plowed soil. He bends down, works at it with his hands, pulls out the box, undoes the clasp, and inside he finds something that seems to come from another world. Gold, jewels, all glinting in the sunlight. And at that point, he does something that he couldn't have imagined himself doing even an hour beforehand. He reburies the box, he goes home, and he sells everything that he has. His house, his cart, his donkey, his animals. His wife and his friends think he's out of his mind. 
but he knows that if he can just get the title to that field, his life will never be the same again. The second story, though, is different, isn't it? Jesus introduces us to a professional pearl dealer. This guy is an expert in his field. He buys and sells pearls for a living. He knows how to spot a good one from 50 paces. He's a pro. And uh, part of being a pro is knowing that one day you might find the big one. He knows that if he just keeps looking one day, he might get a chance to make a trade that will totally revolutionize his future. So always it's there in the back of his mind. If the big one comes along, I know what I'll have to do, and I'm willing to do it. I won't miss the opportunity when it comes. Now, as you're hearing Jesus' words here this morning, you might find yourself in one of these two slots. You might perhaps regard yourself as a bit of a pro in the area of what makes life worth living. You might have tried quite a few different approaches to finding meaning and purpose in what you do. Perhaps you've invested a lot of yourself in pearls that promise high, uh, like sports or relationships or career or whatever it is for you. You've got pretty well acquainted with the shape and the nature of the hole in your life that those things are trying to fill. And I hope, if you've done that, that uh, they've left you waiting for the big one. Because none of these things really cut it, do they, when it comes to uh, fulfilling and satisfying our desire for acceptance and forgiveness and purpose and rest. And as you listen to Jesus, I think he would have you ask yourself, is this it? Is this the pearl for which it's worth laying down everything you have? But it may be that you're not a pro at all as you come to this this morning in this area of spiritual things. Maybe you've never thought about the significance of being in or out of God's kingdom until the last 40 minutes. But now you've stubbed your toe on it. And uh, as Jesus is speaking, you're seeing the lid of the box creak open and you're getting a glimpse of the unspeakable riches inside. Freedom from the whole treadmill of trying to be God yourself a way to escape the punishment that our self-centered lives truly deserve. And so as you listen to Jesus, it may be that you're hearing him ask you to do something that you couldn't have imagined doing an hour ago. It may be that you're hearing his call to put all your worries and all your dependence on your riches out on the driveway under a sign and buy into the 1,200 pages of real estate you have in front of you in which the treasure of the kingdom of heaven is buried. Because that's the way this passage full of parables ends. You can almost miss the last one, actually, if you're not reading along really carefully. After the parable of the net, which we looked at together with the parable of the weeds, we get this one last throwaway line in verse 52. Just turn to that with me. We know it's a parable because it starts in the way that all the other parables start. The kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. It doesn't sound particularly revealing, does it? But uh, just uh, back up before that intro a little bit, and it does get more interesting. In every other parable, the story starts with those words, the kingdom of heaven is like. But here it starts, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. And that changes the game here, I think. In Matthew's gospel, the teachers of the law are bad news. 
If this whole passage is about the division that exists between the people who are in God's kingdom and the people who are out, these guys could not be more out. In Matthew 8, the teachers of the law are the people who can't handle the cost of being part of the kingdom. In Matthew 9, they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. In Matthew 12, they pass to him for a sign. In Matthew 15, they accuse him of riding roughshod over their traditions. In Matthew 16, Jesus tells his disciples he's about to be handed over to them to be killed. In Matthew 26, that's exactly what happens. Seven times in Matthew 23, Jesus pronounces woe on the teachers of the law for their blindness and self-interest. And yet here in this chapter that pulls no punches at all on the reality that we can exclude ourselves from the good that God has planned for the present and the future, Jesus tells us that the teachers of the law can come in. Why? I think Jesus simply wants to make us choose. We don't have to be people who have much of the world, but little of God. People who are losing even the little that they have as each week goes by. We don't have to be people who sit under God's word in church every Sunday, but are steadily becoming less and less likely to do anything about it. We don't have to be people whose hope is in wealth and whose recourse when we see the fragility of that hope is worry. Even if we're teachers of the law inside, we can still become disciples in the kingdom of God if we'll see it for what it is and lay everything else down to be part of it. Jesus told his disciples that their eyes saw and their ears heard because they were blessed. And blessing is something that's available to anyone who admits their desperation and calls out to him for help. Let's pray. God in heaven, that's my heart's cry to you this morning. Would you please bless me? And I pray, God, that that might be the prayer rising up all over this room. Lord, what's laid out in these parables um, just urges us, just leads us.